of us maybe have been more influenced by cultural memes than we might realise when we think about what happens to turn us on. This is Story Etc. I'm Tom Crowley. Whether it's being expressed, repressed, pursued or denied, sex is one of the most ubiquitous motivating forces in fiction. Calls for greater representation are broadening this spectrum of sex and sexuality, adding greater nuance to the conversation across fiction in all media. So much fiction is an attempt to express something that's keenly felt and that's usually kept secret, so no surprise that sex and desire occupy so much of it. In this episode, we're looking at ways in which sex is depicted in a number of different media, incorporating lust, desire, romance, fetish, pornography and asexuality, so I probably don't need to tell you that you should expect explicit language and content throughout. Hello, I'm Eleanor. I'm Jenny. And we're talking about sex. We are talking about sex. Sex is one of the subjects that we wanted to do an episode on really early on when we were talking about making the podcast. Um, and for me, I think one of the reasons I was keen to do it, but also the reason I think we've we've waited a little bit, um, it's just because it's such a huge subject mm-hmm. to address. You know, it's so universal, really, because... Um, whether you're someone who has sex, doesn't have sex, however you have sex, who you have sex with, um, what you do when you have sex, it's it's such a motivator for story and it's such a catalyst and expression of emotion um, that sex in fiction is one of the more interesting mm-hmm. subjects, I think. Yeah. And for clarity, in this particular episode, we are talking about the act of sex within fiction. So whilst we might comment on sex in real life, we are looking to to explore, sorry, um, different representations of sex within film, books, um, and and that kind of stuff and how far reaching it is. Um, It is, like Eleanor said, it's, it's, it's present in so much of what we see and take in from a, a world of fiction, whether or not the act is actually happening, um, from dodgy rom-coms where, you know, nothing ever happens except sex or not sex. Who knows? Sex may or may not be happening and you're still watching. Um, all the way through to sort of erotic literature and, um, sex scenes within literary fiction and that kind of stuff. It's just, it, it gets everywhere. It goes off onto so many tangents that we fully appreciate that this episode isn't going to cover everything, um, and we fully acknowledge that it doesn't, but we wanted to pick up on a couple of things, um, and I think all of us have found something deeply interesting, or a particular aspect of this, that we found really interesting and wanted to learn more about. When we first talked about doing a sex episode, one of the people I really wanted to speak to was Lindsay Dukes, um, because I'd seen her play Portia. And it struck me that the world of um, kink, fetish, BDSM was something that I haven't seen explored very much in storytelling. Yet it is such a completely pivotal aspect of so many people's sex lives. It's not this kind of extra optional fantasy. It's something, you know, whatever your thing is that's the motivator that's the motor that's what gets you going and so it 
it's really interesting that because it's not something that everyone enjoys, it's very sidelined, which if you think about it is ridiculous because everyone's sexuality, everyone's sexual preferences, whatever they are, are are fairly unique. They're, they're tailored to them and, and that kind of thing. So I was really, really interested to talk more generally about that. Lindsay Jukes is a writer, actor and theatre maker based in London. In her play Portia, she dramatised the experience of becoming involved in a domination-based sexual relationship for the first time. Eleanor Rushton sat down with Lindsay to discuss representing kink sensitively on stage and her own self-discovery. You've got to draw the line somewhere, right? And I did some research to see where other people might draw the line, but the internet provides no fucking answers. Quite the opposite. It's a fucking minefield out there. I thought it was just hitters and hitties, but it's not. It's... it's... Bondage givers, bondage receivers, degradation, humiliation, masochists, sadists, experimentalists, exhibitionists, masters, mistresses, dominatrixes, hunters, prey, voyeurs, swingers, non-monogamists, polyamorists, age players, girls, boys, mummies, daddies, brats, pets, slaves. We're not in Kansas anymore. I'm Lindsay Jukes and I, I'm here because I wrote a play called Portia which is all about a young actor, I am also an actor, um, it's quite autobiographical, a young actor who is trying her best to be an excellent feminist but has just discovered the world of kink and the world of BDSM and there are some contradictions initially that she that she finds in those two worlds that she wants to inhabit. I thought to begin with, you could maybe just talk a little bit about writing about sex in general. It's actually going to be quite difficult to answer this question without talking about kink. That's fine. I think. That's fine. Um, Bring sim- it in. <laughs> simply because this is this is kind of the only full thing that I've mm. written so far. Mm. Um, and part of the reason why I was compelled to write it was due to the discovery of kink. So I kind of went into this world and, uh, and realised that there was a way of talking about sex and a kind of a way, especially as a woman, of asking for what you want. Um, um, that was really exciting and a kind of ownership of who you are and what you want and the kind of person that you the kind of things that you want to explore during sex um, and so I think the literally the reason why I was able to write such a kind of candid piece um, was because I was entering a world where people were talking about sex in a different way I probably before I discovered kink um, and BDSM and all of the wonderful, beautiful things in and around that world, I would have found it very, very difficult to talk about sex. So I think the piece is kind of, it's a kind of showing of that, that liberation. Right. Yeah. Yes. That's what it felt like. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of like, oh my God, I've just discovered something. And this thing has made me want to talk about this way more than I ever have. And I want to tell you all about it. Like discovering a band, but bigger and more Mm. important. (laughs) In in the play, the the character Gemma, there's a moment when she talks about um, having an orgasm. And I think, you know, for women, like orgasms can be easy. And but I think for a lot of women, orgasms can be very, very difficult. And it took me a long time to find 
away to orgasm and kink was a big part of that again I think for women it's usually about relaxing and accepting kind of what it is you know who you are and what it is that you want um and feeling psychologically content um and I think through my discovery of, of kink I was able to access that and therefore I was able to orgasm you said that it's like discovering a band and like to, I discovered or, like orgasms are awesome but I discovered <laughs> them so late and I discovered them due I think to realizing that there was a conversation around sex that I hadn't been able to access previously um, and so I was able to accept elements of myself that I hadn't been able to accept previously you know I, I, I suddenly I could I could orgasm and I wanted to tell everyone about it <laughs> I can do <laughs> yeah the thing you just said about the accessing a part of yourself you didn't know about that's such an interesting way to put it because I think the idea in general of self-discovery is such a kind of catalyst for drama mm. in so many different forms yeah and that is very clearly in Portia as well yeah and but it's such a particular kind of self-discovery kind of and one that I think well I don't know maybe you could tell us a bit about the kind of audience you're expecting for the plague I remember talking to you in the bar afterwards and you saying you were nervous because people from the sort of kink community were yeah. going to be there yeah like, how did you approach the idea that you were going to be playing in front of an audience, some of whom were extremely well versed in the sort of the dynamics in that world? And yeah. then some people who just... I was completely terrified throughout the entire thing because I have um, friends who I've kind of, you know, introduced the idea of kink to and they've been like, oh, my God, are you OK? You know, and I've had to really reassure people that, that I'm having a wonderful time. Um, and obviously, you know, within the kink world, I've made a lot of new friends and there's this just enormous spectrum. I was very, very concerned about in any way making the BDSM community seem weird or wrong or bad. But because a lot of what the play was about was trying to reconcile feminism with BDSM and it can be done um I am delighted to say um but um but uh, but but, uh, but you know when you're when you're young and when it's all completely new and when your body's telling you like yes this is amazing but your kind of brain and your circle of friends perhaps are um are, are, are maybe kind of a little bit concerned about the implications of BDSM um uh, that that can be that that can be you know very very tricky and BDSM can come off quite quite badly if you're not careful um, and I wanted to show her working through all of that because I kind of wanted to take the vanilla audience and kind of help them through all of those stages so that you know by the end BDSM can can be seen as I mean, I, I didn't, you know, it doesn't end with kind of, you know, fireworks and joy and glee that, you know, there's quite a lot, there's still quite a lot of complications around all of it. But I, 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 I think I did succeed in, um, in, in, in not kind of downing the BDSM world and, and not kind of downing the, the men in, in that world as well. Um, I think for for every male partner that I've engaged with when they've been sort of dominating, I think it's very, I think, you know, that man in a liberal feminist world has got to kind of deal with a, a huge amount of potential guilt and worry and fear um, because every man that I've kind of played with 
um, in, ter uh, in terms of playing with dominance and submission has been, of course, a feminist. And, you know, what's so beautiful about the world is that you negotiate and you make sure that you're both okay and you're both happy. But I think, you know, to a vanilla world, if a male hits a woman, that's not looking good, especially down to a vanilla feminist world, that's really, really not looking good. And so it was very, very, very important to me that kind of the dominant character in the play who doesn't appear because it's a one woman show um but he that he is kind of not in any way villainized and i think i succeeded in that hmm. uh, certainly my my friends from the from the king community enjoyed the show i i, I think uh, a lot and um and i and i asked them and they said no you absolutely you did us proud have you seen sort of other attempts to kind of portray BDSM world in a like in a an accurate way. Have you come across anything else that you sort of think has done a good job? <laughs> so obviously you think of the opposite. So my brain immediately goes to Fifty Shades. Yeah, of well I think so does everyone. Grey, <laughs> which and it's so sad that that's been that that's done as well and been ho as horribly commercialised and Hollywoodized as it has been because it's really difficult not to think of that now. Are you thinking of anything in particular? Do you have any thoughts? I thought the secretary. Oh my god, the secretary Which is so good. Um, the secretary is 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 so beautiful. Only thing um, that that some of my friends don't like about that film is the fact that her um, self harm is very prevalent throughout. Right. Um, and there is, you know, this kind of difficult connection with the father figure. Um, and it's and and I, I'm not sure what I think about that. You know, like I think sex often is about taboos and kind of like um to put it crassly like the fucked up things that have happened and i think you know sex can be a kind of positive expression of of potentially less nice things that have happened yeah. um so i think the secretary is an absolutely beautiful film I love it. Um, I think some some people don't enjoy... Yeah, and I think this is part of the reason why I was very nervous to write my piece, because I'd spoken a lot to people in the community, um, and, um, and, and, a, and a big thing was like, don't, don't show us to be fucked up. You know, don't, don't connect my desire to, you know, hit someone with my daddy issues. Don't connect my desire to, to be here or choked in bed with the fact that I had a fucked up relationship with my mum. Like, I, I don't want those, those links to be being drawn. Um, and in the play that I wrote, um, there is a sort of dad figure very kind of lurking in the background. And I, um, I didn't want to kind of pin everything on that, but um, I think it, again in in the kink world, mental health is something that people just feel freer to talk about. Everything for some reason has. I think when you admit that you want to be hit, or you admit that you want to hit somebody, um, everything else kind of is is easier to speak about as well. Mm. And so I don't think mental health, you know, kind of I don't think mental illness is more prevalent in the kink community, but I do think it's something that we're happier to discuss and happier to be open about potentially. And so that's why in the play that I wrote, like, you know, there's a there's a kind of OCD thread that goes through it and there's a connection with the father as well. And I didn't want to completely not talk about that kind of stuff. No, totally. And it's sort of it it is it is prevalent and memorable, but it's also interesting because it's it sort of seems to deal with how that that sort of um 
like internal landscape is feeding into the kind of sexual desires, but also how the sort of sexual relationship she's conducting in the play is helping her work through all that stuff and finding an outlet and that kind of stuff. And I think people are becoming more, people sort of in general becoming more and more au fait with the idea that you've got to work through your shit, whatever that shit may be. And that you do that through your relationships and you do that through all sorts of things. Absolutely. So I think it, it didn't feel like, she had had this problem and therefore she yeah. wanted to be here. Yeah, it felt absolutely. like she had this problem and this was an interesting way she'd found her. Yeah. I think more of what I'm saying is that, yeah, 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 absolutely. And more, it's more, it's not like, oh, I've had a fucked up life, therefore I like being here. But it's like sex sometimes when it's good is a release and a relief sometimes. And a kind of like, oh God, I can engage in this other part of me that I've been like pinning down and squashing down because it's not okay um you know and 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 I'm and I'm needing to be this kind of very on it very direct excellent feminist all the time and sometimes it's nice to experience something sensorially that is that is that is different um from from that and so it's it yeah like it's it's BDSM is my my version of kind of a release and relaxing and being a different part of myself and therefore I'm able to really enjoy myself sexually um and I think for other people it's different stuff you know one thing I really enjoyed about Portia was that it was really funny there were parts of it that I suppose were on some scale surprising or it was you know stuff that one wouldn't know unless one was sort of in the community but like how did you sort of it, it felt like you had very masterfully managed to kind of create an atmosphere of the play that was sometimes dark and sometimes sad, but then also very funny, very sort of kind of modern and witty and that kind of stuff. Was it a conscious thing of you trying to sort of steer the audience through? I wrote the first draft and I thought I'd written the tragedy. You know, I I, I thought, or I thought it was like really deadly serious. Like I think, I think it's, it's pretty obvious um, and I said it at the beginning, like it, it's 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 very very autobiographical. This first kind of splurge, it it kind of very very much came from me in quite a raw sense. And I was I was you know the character at the beginning is quite unhappy, quite desperately unhappy. And I started writing the piece when I was quite desperately unhappy. Um, and uh, I think I knew that there were some funny kind of one off lines, but I read it to the first few people, and I was genuinely incredibly surprised by how funny people found it i think also like when you're talking about sex people laughing makes it easier for them um so i kind of feel like the first you know the first few reads possibly there was a bit of nervous laughter as well and i think i realized that and 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 i was kind of through through writing the piece i was getting better and feeling and kind of feeling happy and through showing it to people I was I was feeling better and so I think and it went through so many drafts um and I think kind of in every draft I was happier to push more and more and more humor in it and that was absolutely the way to go with it so it sort of began it it sort of I didn't know I was writing a play I was sad and I was just writing something to Mm. kind of get myself out of bed um and and then yeah when it when it when I realised that it was something that was viable and that I could show to other people, absolutely humour was was so, so important to putting these ideas across. Yeah. yeah. And especially what you were saying about sort of people not wanting to be portrayed as simply just like fucked up. I think yeah. the humour from someone looking from the outside makes that not happen yeah. because it's, yeah. 
it's somehow injected like a sense like it, it just seemed proportional and like yeah you know obviously we know real life is here and we also know that our our kind of sex life is here yeah yeah also I think like I didn't you know there was there was quite a lot of humor poked at um at the kind of BDSM crowd but there was also I think almost there was more humour poked at the feminists and I am a feminist and I and kind of all of that um, but but sometimes it, it can be terrifying especially when you're discovering a new world and um, and and trying to work out whether it's compatible a huge thing that I was trying to say with the players that were all so contradictory mm. um, and, and to a certain extent like we need to let ourselves be that um, and not give ourselves a hard time Casually cleaning my dom's house while listening to Woman's Hour on Radio 4. Of course, says Fiona, it is equally important not to criticise those women who choose to make the free, empowered choice to stay at home and look after the children. I'm perched precariously on a three-legged stool, munching on the last lumps of blue cheese from Dan's otherwise wasteland of a fridge, trying to swap spider webs from the corners of his ceiling with a sponge. With the other hand, I cradle my breasts. Since going back on the pill, they've grown dramatically, but Dan's house is a bra-free zone. I'm also wearing a collar and have two bright pink love balls rattling around inside my freshly shaven vagina, edging me ever closer to the most confusing orgasm of my life. I never quite realised just how tantalisingly beautiful Mr Muscle actually is. Dead, dust-encrusted insects wash over me like the sexual awakening that I am surely at this very moment embodying. Dan enjoys listening to Radio 4, particularly whilst throat-fucking me until my eyes water and my makeup run so I look like Alice Cooper. It's a powerful choice because if you listen to Radio 4 as regularly as he does, you know they're only really interested in child abuse, women's rights and religious conflict. Last week, while he was absent-mindedly experimenting with my arse and a horse crop, I momentarily surfaced from the pain to tune into a particularly graphic description of a woman being stoned to death in Syria. As the horror of the situation dawned on me, I simultaneously realised that there was nothing to be done. Dan clearly hadn't noticed and I was handcuffed to the toweling rail. Those clips of Portia were written and performed by Lindsay Dukes and recorded by Eleanor Rushton. One of the most common places that uh, depictions of sex happen in fiction is that kind of classic romantic notion it's one of those like like we mentioned um before sex is an issue whether or not it's happening in certain cases which i do believe is is a when harry met sally line um which kind of proves my point but it is so much of so many classic stories that we are brought up with yeah I think that's exactly right. It's something that is such a motivator for humans and therefore for characters in fiction, whether it's the desire to have sex or um, the ramifications of it or just its presence in a story. And that's something that is often included incredibly powerfully, is sometimes approached from kind of more of an oblique angle and then sometimes done really badly, which is also pretty funny, quite fun as well.
where sex is or isn't happening quite often within central romantic things, it's still a key theme. But it also kind of segues into other genres. If you think about Dracula and things like that, it it becomes a metaphor for so many other aspects of storytelling that we take a book at face value and kind of get surprised when you become an adult and go, oh my God, they're talking about sex, really? I didn't pick up on that at all. Um, Or are able to enjoy a piece of fiction on multiple levels. We now present an original monologue about pornography and isolation, written specifically for this episode. IRL by Christian Graham. I've worked it out. Two months. That's my average. It took me two months to get a job at the pork scratching, a greasy spoon in Crystal Palace. It was a fairly eventless job, serving cranky builders their morning coffee. I was pulling pints before that, so... Nice as it was not to end the days smelling of warm beer, I now spend the evenings washing the odour of smoked bacon from my hair. A couple of weeks in, a new girl started. Eliza. A pretty thing who's eager to please. A tall girl with a lopsided smile and a bunch of piercings. She was probably pissed in all those places you're not meant to get pissed, I thought. And I was besotted. But... I've seen enough films to know how workplace romance unfolds, so I tell myself it's probably best to admire her from afar, even if I enjoy how her eyes remind me of the sky on a clear day, or if I like how her hair is always playfully tousled but never messy, or if I enjoy the way that there is a slight bounce to her walk, as if she doesn't quite obey gravity in the way that the rest of us do. Next week we've got work drinks, someplace in Soho. I make some excuse about full-body migraines and stay at home. Just me and my joypads. Levelling a fictional city makes me feel mildly better about missing what I'm sure will be an incredible night. Now, I admit that I'm not always like this, but after a dry spell I kind of go into heat. My muscles get tense, my mind wanders, and I wake up every other day with morning glory like concrete. At such times, I turned to internet porn. The more I watched, the further my mind got from images of me and Eliza. However, a few seconds into Big Butt Sluts 4, I saw something strange. One of the actors has Eliza's face. It's not her. Uh, Eliza's frame is smaller, her figure less curvy. But facially, this woman is a dead ringer. Once more, the girl from work is dead centre in my consciousness. I go to work the next morning, utterly defeated. Not even porn could save me now. Thankfully, the day goes quickly. No angry workmen or broken crockery or till discrepancies. Eliza doesn't arrive until late shift, so I spend most of the day without her. We close up in near silence. I know that if I don't speak, I can get away quickly. Unfortunately, she knows what I'm up to, says she wants to straighten out whatever it is that's wrong. And when she proposes a chat over coffee, I'm powerless to resist. My lips form the words yes without my consent. On a rainy evening, I turn up at Shoreditch High Street, exiting the station to be buffeted by rain and wind. I pull my jacket closed as the buttons have broken and I never seem to find time to sew them back on. I remove an umbrella from my bag and watch it bloom. Three of the spines are broken, but it's served me well thus far. 
I set off for the Quasette, a hipster establishment on Brick Lane. All naked brickwork and starving artists. Reaching the cafe, I step inside and shake the excess water from my brolly. I see Eliza sitting at the back of the cafe. I order a coffee and sit with her. She's already nursing a latte. We talk about everything and nothing. It wasn't the car crash I thought it would be. But then I realised how ordinary she was. I don't know why, but I'd turned her into some manic pixie dream girl when she was basically a street artist from a single-parent home using the job to pay for a flight abroad. The piercings were something that had been inspired by her ex, something like a brotat. She kept them after the breakup because... why not? The following evening, I looked back at the events of that night. At a house party in West London, I tried to recount the events to Frank, a mate from college. Not the best of locations due to the noise and confusion, but I needed someone to check that I wasn't dreaming. We tried to make it upstairs to his bedroom, past rows upon rows of revellers. I should have known it wouldn't be a quiet one. Not with Frank. He was the kind of person to ask you for a quiet pint and send you back home on the bus at four in the morning with no shoes and someone else's nail clippings in your back pocket. Needless to say, he knew how to call a spade a spade. And that's why I was there. Frank opens his bedroom door and more people pour out. We make our way to his bed and I give up on the premise of privacy. In 15 minutes, I've spilled my guts. He knows about the cafe, the porn and the girl. He says, well, it sounds like Brick Lane was a success. And then I have to concede that there was one thing I didn't tell him. As I was preparing to leave, I unearthed my umbrella and ended up calling Eliza by the porn actress's name. Just as I said bye. Frank shakes his head. I nod mine. I corrected myself. But the look in her eyes said she knew who I was talking about. It felt wrong to ask her if she did, if she watched porn, and if she was a fan of said performer. I'm presuming not, because it would be like whacking off to a picture of yourself. Frank howls with laughter at hearing the last bit and tells me I'm all right. I give her a call to see if she wants to join the party. No answer. Probably just as well. If another person arrived, the whole flat would probably collapse. I make my way outside for a brief moment. I feel the silence. I make the most out of it. I cool down. My phone buzzes in my pocket. It's Eliza. She tells me the party doesn't sound like her cup of tea and my heart sinks a little. Enjoying the silence, I start to wander further away. I reach a bus stop and think about not turning back. Later that night, I open my bedroom door and flop down onto the bed. My energy is spent. My lungs feel heavy from the fumes of the city. I feel restless. My mind wanders. I open my laptop. Only one thing for it. I'm trawling the porn sites again. Eliza pops back into my mind. And so does the porn star. I search for big butt sluts. For a moment, I pause. Thinking about the ethics of what I'm about to do. And then I remind myself that it's porn. And porn has nothing to do with ethics. Nothing to do with reality. And I watch these hairless women in their late teens fill my screen, acting out every one of my fantasies. And I'll spend the night with Eliza.
the night she won't let me have. In the morning, I polished my shoes and got ready for another day at the pork scratching. I arrived to the manager frantically looking through his phone book. He needs cover. I ask why. Eliza is AWOL. I feel a sinking in the pit of my stomach. Like she knows what I've done. Like she knows and is so disgusted she can't even bring herself to look at me. Can't even be in the same building as me. I start opening the blinds and putting menus out and taking chairs off tables. Soon we'll get the morning rush. I go over to the front door and flip the open closed sign and it hits me. Eliza has enough money. She'll be on her travels, on to the next place. She won't be caught for dust. Of course, I'll still be here. I think it must be the way the world works. Those who sit alone in a dark room covered in white light and those who go out and do things. I've worked it out. Two types of people. I hear a yell of glee come from the office. He's found someone free. You see, he's just hired some new girl. A pretty thing he's eager to please. IRL was written and performed by Christian Graham. It was directed by Tom Crowley and recorded by Andy Goddard at the Coach House Studio. After the recording, Christian and I spoke about his experience of writing the piece. Hello, I'm Christian Graham, writer and actor, um, and I wrote IRL. So, uh, listeners at home, Christian wrote IRL sort of on commission, should we say, yeah. as a favour, let's say, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, for this show, as the theme of the episode was sex. Uh, and what I really loved about it was the the loneliness, the sense of solitude that it creates, not just through talking about porn, but also talking through about how technology and instantly accessible uh, entertainment and, you know, sex kind of drives us apart from each other to a certain extent. And um, there's a real sense of the characters not really understanding each other that well, partly as a consequence of that. What was your way into writing about this topic, particularly for the theme of sex? Yeah, so um, I knew that I had to write about sex. So I kind of, I think just the the most... um, the most uncomfortable thing came to mind. And I, and I was like, oh, what shouldn't I write about? <laughs> and then it was too kind of like, um, yes, yeah, it was too good not to. So then I, I thought, right, OK, well, sometimes the most uncomfortable stuff makes for the best work. And um, yeah, so I thought I'd take a whack at it. It, it, it was also, I think um, I was thinking about what I'd what I'd been what I'd been talking about um, and not too long ago, I'd had a, um, I'd had a conversation with 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 um, a writer friend actually about, um, uh, well, about about sex, and she was kind of like, she th- thought that she could tell who was watching a lot of porn and who wasn't, and I thought it might be interesting <laughs> to kind of uh, maybe um, try and explore one of these people's lives um take one of the people who definitely watches a lot of porn yeah. and try and dig into that a bit yeah yeah what's the yeah, criteria yeah. for telling who does and who doesn't watch a lot of porn i think with her it was so it was about kind of like how long they could last and about like what uh whether they whether she felt like they were more voyeuristic and also where their kind of sense of consent was and whether they just kind of uh yeah moved her around without saying anything or you know all that kind of stuff 
Um, so uh, your idea of um, what constitutes a sort of mutually satisfactory sexual experience yeah, is warped yeah. by if you're used to seeing, you know, dominating male figures in pornography. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to kind of say um, all porn is wrong, and if you watch porn, then blah 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 blah. blah. But um, yeah, I think that at one thing that isn't so healthy is that uh, a lot, a lot of it at the moment is very much focused on male pleasure and. Um, and it starts off with the male being pleasured and ends with the male being pleasured, and it's all, um, yeah, all, all circulated around that. Interestingly, you're the only man we're interviewing for this episode yeah. about sex. Okay, yeah. Uh, uh, how do you? Does that make you feel? Um, special that. Um, well, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, um, yeah, I guess um, a little nervous, but you know, I think it's just really nice to be included in the conversation, um, and I think it's good to generally. I, th- I think it's 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 good to be asking more of what women think and basically hopefully getting more of their point of view on things, especially sex, because um, a lot of the time we kind of make them quiet or we don't ask them. So um, yeah, so I think it's good that I'm I'm the only guy at the moment. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, on on the kind of the subject of um, representation of uh, male desire, I think that. Um, it was just really nice to kind of get something where it was a guy trying to um, trying to explore something that he felt defined his masculinity and failing. And I, I, I also kind of feel like it's an experience like mine where sometimes you're, what you're trying to do or the way you're trying to live your life is through being like, OK, well, what shall I do? What do men do? OK, right. I'll do that, and uh, and through that, um, you you don't you don't get it get it right, or you feel like you haven't you're not quite playing the game the way you should play it, and then that makes you feel a sense of loss when really um, yeah when really it's a it's a lot of conditioning that needs to be undone in a certain way. So it's about masculinity as well in the play. It's about a conventional idea of masculinity. Yeah, I think so because he's kind of like okay, I need to. Um, I need to be I need to be watching a lot of porn because I need to be really um, because I need to be really sexual and I need to um, be talking to this guy in this way about uh, about these women and and you know even if it's a, a guy that I don't really like that much because we're on two different ends of the spectrum I need to be seen to be being a lad's lad um or that's that's kind of how I see the how I see the main character. There's probably there's probably a few different ways to spin it. I think porn's quite a tricky one because it does exist for a specific purpose and it is storytelling. Yeah, it's there to at whatever level engage with the fantasy. Yep. Whether it's something that is a story as simple as there is a person here or persons here who desperately want to have sex with you slash each other mm-hmm. and that's it. Mm-hmm. Or it's a much more sort of high production values. There are dragons and there are, I don't know, princes and librarians and castles, whatever. But it is um, engaging with the fantasy element. Otherwise there wouldn't be porn, I guess. And so this idea of storytelling within it, it yeah, it is a tricky one because... I suppose it's about thinking about people who make porn or make erotica 
the extent, the varying extent to which they see it as artistic or storytelling. I was thinking about this earlier, about how porn is quite often where a certain generation of us get our first information about sex in the real world and how we uh, take that in in different ways. So guys at my school were the ones more readily finding, I think it was still porn in the woods at that stage. It was one magazine that got passed around the class type deal. Whereas I think the girls were the ones that were maybe finding access to different levels of storytelling. So they were looking for more of a, well, a different kind of fantasy, I suppose. One really interesting um, offshoot of this, I think, uh, that particularly pertains to younger girls is um, slash fiction, which is, I think, this is um, a fact someone told me a while ago, so it may or may not be true still, but it certainly feels like it still is. It's the largest, the the slash that is now on the internet, um, for anyone who doesn't know what slash is, it's fan fiction where... It has a sexual element, so making characters have sex with each other. Um, It's the largest pool of erotica written for and produced by women. And lots of producers of slash fiction are quite young women. And it has opened up areas of discussion around female sexuality that were not being had before. So, for example, one quite common trope in slash fiction I read this in a in an article about Harry Potter slash fiction. I was thinking it was going to be Harry Potter. It, of course, it's Harry Potter based. Um, was that something that came up again and again? Is that they'd um, me- they'd often um, make male characters have sex with each other because the people who were writing it tended to be young straight women who found men attractive and wanted them to have sex with each other. Um, but also, they were sort of making the behave in kind of stereotypically feminine ways. But also there's a big thing about men getting pregnant by each other. And so it's kind of and them exploring this idea and probably these fears about what sex can mean. Because when you're 16, 17, the thing you're, I think, most scared of is getting pregnant. Um, and this fascinating idea of sex in this kind of I don't want to call it porn, but this kind of erotica as something that not only is there to stimulate the people who read it and the people who write it, but that also can speak to something really, really key and true about the producers of it. Um, Your point about um, things being written by young women and they're attracted to men, so they want to see men get off with each other, I think uh, was why I wanted to talk to Pandora Blake about, um, about her work, because... Uh, particularly in the mainstream porn world, it's very difficult to find um, material which actually puts a woman's pleasure in any way in focus. And I think it was really interesting to speak to her and actually hear a little bit more about how you go about plotting a storyline where the woman is centre, where nothing that she doesn't want to happen happens and where what she wants to happen happens. The commonly accepted image of pornography is exactly how it's portrayed in Christian's story. It's lonely, it's shameful, and it's plagued by issues of exploitation and misogyny. A number of writers and filmmakers have made great efforts in recent years to push back against this homogenised notion. One of this new breed of pornographers is Pandora Blake, based in London, 
whose work strives to be feminist and queer-inclusive. She produces ethical and performer-driven porn, which explores fetish and fantasy on her site dreamsofspanking.com. Jenny Redmond spoke to her about her work. Hi, I'm Pandora Blake. Um, I am a feminist, an activist, and I make porn. So we are approaching porn from a potentially slightly different angle mm. today and looking at it as a form of storytelling. So can you talk to me a little bit first off about your um, process as a pornographer of putting stories together? Oh, that's such a good question. So um, before I launched the site, I was getting story ideas faster than I could write them down. Um, I don't know if you are kind of experienced in this process where you've kind of got the idea, you're committed to doing it, but you haven't launched it yet. And it just fills your head. You can't think about anything else. I was getting kind of three film ideas a day and just trying to like write them down as fast as I could and hoping that at some point I'd have the chance to put them into action. Um, so... A lot of the ideas come from kind of my personal erotic imagination. Some of them are fantasies I've had since I was a child. Um, some of them are inspired by non-sexual fiction that I've read and thought, oh, that's got sexy potential. I think I'm going to put a twist on that um, and make it a bit more explicit. So quite a lot of kind of homage to my favourite genres or authors and quite a lot of satire as well. Um, so, yeah, when it's one of those um, scenarios, I'll write out a kind of treatment like a couple of paragraphs. And then um, once it comes to the point of casting, um, I will send the idea, you know, I've got a kind of bank of ideas. So when I cast someone, the first thing that I do is talk to them about what they're into, ask them if they've got any ideas. And if they've got their own fantasies, then we develop those as a matter of priority. But if they say, oh, you know, I'm kind of interested in this sort of thing, but I don't have any specific ideas, then I'll go and look in my kind of collection of story ideas and see what might suit them, send them some possibilities and say, well, what do you think? And so then the stories will be developed in collaboration with the performer. Um, my work is very performer driven. Um, I think that's quite important to ethical production, particularly when you're doing sort of more BDSM type fantasies, which a lot of my work focuses on. Um, it's really important that Everyone involved, particularly uh, the bottom, if there's a power exchange going on, is completely enthusiastic about what's happening and in an ideal world that it'll be an authentic self-expression for them to take on that role. So um, they often evolved past the point where, you know, I'd recognise them. And sometimes, because we very rarely script material, um, firstly, it's quite hard to pay people enough to really compensate them fairly for their time memorising a script. And also, you know, porn is, um, shooting porn is incredibly good fun. It's especially BDSM porn. The way I work isn't very staged. We don't usually go in for the sort of cinematic production values where we're storyboarding and shooting each shot very carefully because when you're doing a BDSM scene and maybe you're receiving pain or you're submitting and getting into a kind of altered state of consciousness, that can be really disruptive to your immersion. And what I'm interested in producing is some really hot, really authentic encounters of people who are genuinely into it and genuinely enjoying it. And so to facilitate that, I more prefer to create a strong container and then shoot as unobtrusively as possible to try and almost document or record what's happening. Mainstream porn is hugely story-based these days. I mean, even Brazzers, uh, which is kind of one of the most mainstream production studios out there, it's owned by the people who own the tube sites, they've done like a Game of Thrones felt porno. You know, there's a lot of good satire and story. Um, I have been accused of being a story fetishist. And it is not uncommon for my films to comprise of 75% story and introduction and build up and anticipation and sort of 25% action. Uh, so I put a huge amount of thought into it. That's um, the primary, the interesting bit for me, to be honest. 
Um, so, I mean, for people who aren't familiar with my work, um, I work within mostly my own productions work within the spanking genre. Um, people probably didn't know there was one of those, but uh, people getting their bums smacked for various reasons. And as someone who has that fetish and enjoys doing that in my private life, I know there's nothing less interesting than someone just saying, right, bend over, you're going to get spanking for no reason. For me, in order to really be able to enjoy the sensations and get into the kind of psychological mindset that allows me to receive the pain, I need a really good reason for it to be happening. And so my stories tend to explore different psychological motivations, why people might deliberately court a punishment or do something knowing it was going to happen and be prepared to take that risk or why they might be being unfairly treated and someone might have a reason to be mean to them and I'm really kind of quite interested in um, scenarios where you've got mutual justification so both of the characters are quite relatable quite believable and have um, really good reasons for doing what they're doing but they're kind of in conflict. What do you think about the overall representation of not just banking but mm. fetishes in general in fiction? You know, I guess the stereotypes which frustrate me when I see them in mainstream Hollywood TV, for example, are when you've got, um, like, a female character who's kinky because she's broken Mm -hmm. and it's some form of uh, self-destruction or equivalent to self-harm. Like, that was one of the things that frustrated me about Secretary. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though, actually, by the end, that's quite a positive depiction of a consensual relationship. I still was like, why did her character have to self-harm? And, um, you know, when you've got uh, men who are submissive, who are the stereotypical, like, CEO who's an alpha male in real life and then likes to be treated like a pathetic worm in private, I mean, it just doesn't have any depth and kind of often is treated, particularly with male submission, as a, a subject of ridicule. It kind of lightens the character or makes them less intimidating, um, gives them a kind of comic element and I actually think that's quite unfair because submission is very complicated and very courageous mm. and quite powerful and beautiful and you have to have a lot of self-determination and strength and strength to really be able to carry yourself through that experience so to see it used played for laughs yeah I don't like that where would you like to see that section of fiction get to with its depiction of porn fetish and mm. sex in general I mean, in literature, there's no excuse, is there? You know, um, you might struggle to cast the perfect performer of colour or the perfect trans performer for your piece, but you can write whatever characters you want. And so when I see books populated by white, middle-class, able-bodied characters, it's just like, oh, you're just being so lazy, you know? Um, Yeah, it can be hard to get right. People might be afraid to write outside what they know, but, you know, it doesn't cost you that much given how much more you're likely to be earning as a white middle class person to hire some people from the marginalised community that you want to represent to read your stuff and give you their critique of it um, so I'd like to see more diversity representation uh, in all areas of fiction I think that all of us deserve to see ourselves represented in the media we consume and that includes um, all you know uh, media, media and all genres so not just um, something that contains sex So overall, I'd just like to see more understanding of the importance of consent, communication, autonomy. I'd like to see negotiation. There's a lovely scene in Scott Pilgrim um, where she offers him tea and they go to bed and they start making out. And she says no. And then she says, you know what, actually, I've changed my mind. And he's like, oh, no, that's cool. I mostly just wanted to cuddle anyway. And it's just no big deal. 
And I'm just like, what, I would like to see more of that sort of thing. More scenes where the characters are talking about what they want. I mean, personally, I talk loads before I get into bed with someone um, about what we might want to do and, you know, what our taste and our limits are. I'd like to see more of that, more negotiation. And more um, kind of centering of consent as the thing that makes sex good and possible and hot. You know, you there's too much slightly non-consensual sex which is presented as hot in fiction where someone's the persuasion the persuasion or the pressure you know like the romantic comedy like just showing up persistently like in love actually where he just shows up at the door like no actually that's harassment that is stalking it is not sexy it would not make you fall in love with him fuck off (laughs) um so yeah definitely more consent and if you're making it um a hot slightly coercive fantasy there make it clear that it's a fantasy and do something to center consent in some other way From a storytelling perspective, I think that we talk about arousal, a lot of people talk about arousal as if it was um, a different kind of reaction to material than other forms of physical or emotional reaction. Um, So this idea, you know, legally speaking, if something is sexually arousing, then it's treated differently, it's treated as pornography, whereas the same material that's not intended to cause sexual arousal, this is why you can classify Game of Thrones, even though it's got loads of sex scenes and loads of rape and loads of violence, where if that exact same material was on a porn site, published and marketed as Mm -hmm. porn, it wouldn't be legal. More intent-led. Yeah, so there's this idea that porn is... um, kind of segregated off into its own ghetto and there's a double standard and something that uh, you can show in pulp fiction where someone's bound and gagged and being raped in the bum as an act of revenge at the end of the film that is definitely not okay in a porn scene because you don't have consent I'd want to see that dismantled what I'd ideally like is an understanding that entertainment media are entertainment media and for all your intent you actually can't control how people are going to react to it so you might make a porn film that's intended to arouse but people are watching it and laughing or they're watching it and crying and those are both physical reactions which we can't help any more than we can help getting horny Um, and I don't think that there's anything better or worse than getting horny than there is about laughing or crying you know, we could laugh involuntarily at an off-colour joke and we wouldn't have been able to help that. It doesn't mean that we condone that kind of humour. It just means we had an involuntary reaction. Maybe it's even a result of our nervousness or a result of our trauma is to have that reaction. Maybe it's gallows humour, you know? We fill our entertainment media with dramas of the exploring suffering and fear and pain and anger and rage and revenge and all these aspects of bereavement, all these aspects of the human condition that are deeply personal and definitely not positive. And yet it's considered that if we bring these negative, so-called negative emotions into our pornography, that somehow it's violent and degrading and bad and toxic and we shouldn't have it. And I think that's bullshit. I think pornography is completely valid medium in which to explore these aspects of the human condition. Um, And if you're finding something emotionally, you know, moving and powerful and it's making you feel sorrow as well as turning you on, that's completely okay. Like, that's completely common experience for a lot of people. Um, Like, arousal is a really normal response to strong emotions like fear and anger um, and anxiety. And so what I'd like to see is fiction being fiction, you know, like documentaries being documentaries and horror films being horror films 
whether or not they they're porn or not like a porn can be a documentary and it can be a soap and it can be a horror film and it can be a drama and it can be a comedy and it can be satire and it's all glommed together as porn at the moment and that's treated like this monolithic genre that's all the same and it's not you can unpack it into so many different genres and it can do so many different things as entertainment it can be political it can be silly um it can be warm it can be moving it can be dark it can be scary and that's okay and what I'd really like is to have those genres, to not have this segregation where you've got non-porn crime stories and then you've got porn crime stories, but actually you've just got crime stories and some of them have got explicit sex in and some of them haven't. Because I think that approach would enable us to really appreciate and acknowledge and explore the richness of porn as a medium and how much it's got to offer as fiction. And you reference yourself or describe yourself or um, online as uh, queer inclusive. Yes. So how does that pan out in what you're producing? Well, I'm queer. <laughs> and so um, I'm making queer porn. I mean, it would have been very easy. The spanking genre, a lot of the fantasies you get are really gendered and in a very heteronormative way. So you see manly men, cowboys dominating girly girls or, or vice versa. Um, very feminine women dominating, um, you know, men who are in quite typical masculine kind of wearing a suit or whatever. Um, and so I think for a lot of people, like, this is complicated because porn is very gendered. Um, sexual fantasy is very gendered. You know, we're given these constraining categories to try and live within. And sexuality can be a really safe space to explore those constraints and explore those stereotypes, which we've been conditioned to find appealing, but maybe wouldn't want to conform to in our real life if we're kind of politically aware. Um, and I think that's completely valid. So some of my fantasies are pretty straight. And by being queer inclusive, what I mostly mean is around my casting decisions. So one of the ways in which um, I try to kind of bark the trend in my website, jamesisbanking.com, is to um, cast, well, to cast for scenarios of all gender orientations. So it's quite normal in porn for the different kind of gender pairings to be segregated. You might have a girl-girl site or a boy-boy site, but the boy-boy site is gay. It's definitely not marketed to women, which I think is missing a real trick because so many women like watching male-male porn. Um, and you definitely wouldn't have both on the same website. So as far as I know, Dreams of Spanking is the only website that I've seen which has straight scenes with male performers and female performers and girl-girl and boy-boy um, all in the same place without any kind of categorising it as gay or straight like anybody can enjoy any of these and I don't presume to guess which of these characters you're relating to um, and I also um, right since the start have had amongst the cast um, transgender performers and non-binary performers um, and that's become an increasingly important thing to me like as transgender politics has become part of a more mainstream discourse to have visibility of trans performers to really centre their voices we've had um, at least one performer publicly transition so they first appeared on the site as a genderqueer boy flavoured human and then they started taking estrogen and kind of did a re-debut as a girl and for the most part the viewers have got the pronouns right and got it and supported it and it's really really lovely <laughs> As a feminist, mm. um, obviously where feminism is is rooted in, in real life experience of women, mm. how do you reconcile that with a fantasy world of, of, of porn and BDSM? 
Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? I mean, first, I think the politics of fantasy are so interesting that I'm actually writing a book about it. So it's very hard for me to answer this question succinctly. Um, But ultimately, I think that while fantasy can be very rich for interrogation and examination, and a lot of us maybe have been more influenced by cultural memes than we might realise when we think about what happens to turn us on. I know I've done a lot of work on myself and realised a lot of the things that I thought were just my preference were in fact a result of patriarchal brainwashing. And as soon as I really examine them, they crumble to dust and I realise that's not my preference at all. Um, But I also think that once you've done that examination, if you still find yourself as a woman being turned on by the idea of being whacked by some male authority figure, like that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It doesn't mean you've been like brainstormed brainwashed by the patriarchy it can be a really valid way to air out a lot of the um tensions that we are confronting in our culture and a lot of the um, non-consensual power imbalances that we have to live with on a daily basis consensual kink could be a really safe container to explore some of um our fears our anxieties our frustrations the things that make us angry feminist porn certainly the porn that i make goes to great lengths to contextualise material, to show you, to be transparent about the realities of shooting. You know, the enthusiastic consent of the performers, their lives um, and three-dimensionality as human beings outside this scenario, um, why they wanted to do this, what they got out of it, what they do the rest of the time, um, centering their voices as much as possible. Like, I would really never want to try and speak for someone, but instead to... Um, give them the microphone, uh, shoot their interviews, um, film behind the scenes interactions, showing them and their scene partners kind of goofing around and how they relate to each other between shots, um, linking to their blogs, their social media, their website, and um, kind of let them speak for themselves. And I think if you've got those materials in place, then discerning viewers can tell whether or not this fantasy is a fantasy and whether or not it was produced consensually and ethically and what the working conditions might have been like on the day um, if they do a bit of research and read what the performers have to say about it but a lot of producers don't bother doing that and they just show you the stuff within the container without any of the context and I think that that it's a way of doing business but I wouldn't call it very feminist In the spectrum of sexuality in fiction asexuality rarely gets a look in As such, we're very proud to present the following monologue by Katie Knight, Swinging Between Branches. He's not my usual type, I'll give you that. Although now I think of it, I'm not sure what my usual type is, other than male. Not that I'm homophobic. I tried it once, but it wasn't for me. All that hair and perfume going on on top, not enough by half going on down below. My friend Agnes used to be bisexual. Well, she says it's not as straightforward as that. She says it's more that she still fancies men and women, but now she doesn't want to sleep with any of them. Biromantic, asexual, she calls herself now. I said, please don't go around calling yourself that. People will just think you really like pens. She wasn't impressed. She rarely is. I said, you must want to sleep with people sometimes. You're not a virgin. She said, it's taken me a long time to figure out what I am. And now it makes sense. I don't want to have sex, so I never do. Biromantic, asexual. I suppose it might as well have a fancy name. Sounds like it's all pretty academic after all. I met him at a quiz night in a pub in town. Agnes was with me. We'd gone into the city centre for some charcoal for the barbecue and some special provisions for Agnes. 
She's a vegetarian, of course. Feminist, too. I wouldn't be surprised if she turned out to be a celiac. She's probably harbouring all manner of intolerances. So anyway, there we were, trying to choose between the rehydrated falafel balls and the fishless fingers, when the sky, which had been ominously grey all afternoon, cracked open into an almighty storm, like ten thousand horses pissing on the pavement. I said to Agnes, We might be being a bit optimistic with this barbecue. She said, We can always move indoors. I'll put the bunting up in the conservatory. We dragged our feet over the checkout to try and stave off going outside, but there wasn't a queue, only an old man buying a pack of digestives, so it didn't take us long, even with Agnes's dramatically thorough hunt for her nectar card. As we ran out of the shop into the streaming rain, I saw a sign outside the Neptune and Fork saying, Quiz night here, tonight. I grabbed Agnes and said, That'll do, and we ran inside. Quite a few people had had the same idea, from the amount of rain-bedraggled folk at the bar. You could feel the steam rising from them as you walked in. Agnes's glasses steamed over in a second. She looked like the Terminator in Platts. We were about an hour early for the quiz, so we got a couple of vodka and cokes and hovered around like vultures, waiting to pounce on a table as soon as one came free. Agnes was worried that the fishless fingers would spoil, but she's the kind of person who's too shy to cause a fuss in any situation, ever. She could be marooned in outer space and she'd rather orbit Jupiter than inconvenience anyone by buzzing for help. So she held the table while I went up to the bar and asked if we could store our things in their fridge. The girl behind the bar wasn't keen. Something about a health and safety liability? I said we'd only just this minute got them from Sainsbury's, but she wasn't moved. You could have all sorts in there for all I know, she said. I said, I haven't got all sorts, I don't like licorice, which didn't help matters. Sorry, it's company policy. You could sue us if anything were to happen to your food. I'd end up losing my job. The Neptune and Fork could go under, and all because we kept your falafel balls three degrees warmer than the optimum. No chance. Not even if we had a disclaimer form, which we don't. Well, I didn't care one way or another about the falafel balls or the fishless fingers. We'd gotten both in case all the members of Agnes's vegan Zumba group turned up. But the principal annoyed me. Not to mention the barmaid, so I pressed on. At that point, I got my phone out to call my lawyer cousin. My actual cousin is 11, and her most impressive achievement to date is playing Jingle Bell Rock on the clarinet. But of course, Her Majesty didn't know that. So I dialed Agnes and pretended that I was talking to my lawyer. This didn't go as smoothly as I'd hoped, as you could hear Agnes's ringtone from where she was sitting a few metres away. Mr. Lover, Lover, <clears throat> Faint, but detectable if you had the ear. Which I do. When I was at school, the teacher reckoned I had perfect pitch. I'm especially sensitive to doorbells. Anyway, Agnes is sitting just far enough away not to have heard my little tete-a-tete with the barmaid, so she hasn't got a clue what's going on, and is very confused when I start asking her what my legal rights are. Starts looking over at me like I'm having some sort of breakdown. I start making out like I can't hear her, so that I can hang up with at least a shred of dignity before she comes over and ruins the whole charade. But while I'm shouting, The line's breaking up! It's no good! I'll have to call your office for official advice! I hear a man's voice asking, Is everything okay? I look over and see a guy, about my age, quite stocky, with a mop of curly hair and sideburns, wearing a pavement t-shirt. There is no thunderbolt to speak of. My initial feeling towards him is an urge to pick his monobrow, but I find male attention to be like Tampax, 
Even if you don't have an immediate use for it, it pays to stock up. Plus, he's wearing a pavement t-shirt, which suggests he's of my clan, child of the 80s, into his indie, someone to swap mixtapes with, who won't judge you for calling it a mixtape. Obscure, yet accessible, and probably the most important factor, he's not my boyfriend. Sean and I are hardly in a relationship, though. We haven't had sex in three months. That's enough to make Agnes jealous. I give him a big smile and say, You haven't got access to a fridge, have you? I can put it in the back room for you, he says. I'm doing the quiz night tonight. I'll be here for a while. Turns out his name is Simon, and he's doing a quiz all about indie music and bands. I tell him me and Agnes are going to stick around for that. He looks pleased and asks me what I want to drink. I'd never had problems attracting men. Not like Agnes. When we were 13, we used to spend time at each other's houses. I'd go through Cosmo, highlighting all the looks I thought I could reasonably recreate on a pocket money budget. I attempted to concoct age-defying lotions for my sister Lou's sagging 17-year-old complexion using the contents of my parents' bath shelf. She bought my face regenerator serum the first few times I made it. At the time, I thought I must be onto something, probably the combination of Brill Cream and Colgate. Agnes and I wrote a letter to both companies to inform them of the miraculous discovery, suggesting that they merge under the new name of Brillgate. We requested a very modest 50% share of the profits for being the heralds of such a revelation. I later found out Lou was just humouring us. I went into her room to take one of her pills I let her have sex without having a baby, and I found the jars of face regenerator, with the product curdling away into a gloopy mess in her top drawer, along with letters from school and other useless artefacts. Agnes and I carried on our lab, though. I pulled Johnny Griffiths the night I wore a generous amount of Lust Delicious, our most popular scent, consisting of coconut shampoo, dove deodorant, and the liquid from a burst bath pearl. Johnny couldn't get enough. Said I smelt like a sexy pharmacologist. Agnes didn't have quite the same luck, though. Something in the Lust Delicious didn't agree with her, brought her out in horrible red hives. Might have been the bath pearl. They were my nans, and she'd been dead five years. They're fussy at Agnes's house. Organic this, fair trade that. Not enough exposure to reality. When she started her periods, her mum gave her a moon cup. She didn't pull anyone that night, needless to say. Nearer she got to being chatted up was Ben Stiles asking if she was contagious. She sat talking to Folky Dan about goodness knows what until I'd finished copping off with Johnny and then called her dad to take us home. In what year did Jarvis Cocker cause outrage by mooning Michael Jackson live on stage at the Brit Awards? Agnes and I are doing well. We've got respectable knowledge of indie bands between us, and this question poses no problem. Because I love pulp, and that stunt at the Brits only strengthened my belief that me and Jarvis Cocker were destined to be together, and that every minute that passed in which we weren't an item was actually a travesty. A situation which Jarvis would no doubt make light of at the wedding speech, comparing my beauty to the moon in a witty reference to his cheeky shenanigans. We write down 1996 on our answer sheet. I remind Agnes that she supported Michael Jackson over the incident and that she claimed at the time that he was just misunderstood. She mumbles something about life being too short to be embarrassed, which is hard to swallow as she's gone, like, puce. 
Simon's voice booms through the mobile speakers he set up at the bar. Already I know I'll sleep with him. Just for the question about half man, half biscuit. He poses his next question. Which seminal Blur album features a pair of greyhounds mid-race? Agnes is wondering whether it's a trick question and they were actually lurchers, but I'm too busy tilting my fake eyelashes at him to write anything down. Then he announces a break and plays Totally Wired by The Fool. And I'm in love. He comes over to talk to us while the other teams are refilling their beers and diving out for a fag. He starts rolling one up on the table, and I'm reminded that not only are there men in the world who don't live the life of a self-flagellating medieval monk, but also that they are occasionally attracted to me. As I watch Simon spread the tobacco evenly along the rice paper without once taking his eyes off me, I think of Sean at home, drinking tap water and watching documentaries on the making of canals. I tell Simon I'll join him outside. We were 17 the first time Agnes came out. Apparently she'd been choosing her moment for the previous three years, but she was nervous about telling us. Ended up blurting it out one evening when we'd all gone to Pizza Express with a buy one, get one free coupon in Cosmo. She said she had something important to tell us and hoped it didn't change anything, but felt she had to let us know that she liked girls. I wasn't overly surprised given that she always used to drink beer down the park while the rest of us wouldn't be seen dead with anything other than the finest Lambrini. Megan almost choked on her garlic dough balls, but then she's always been prone to indigestion. We were soon talking about other things, practical jokes to play on the theatre studies students, our 18 to 30s holiday in Marbella, and Agnes seemed calmer, kind of radiant. Soon after that, her aggressively lesbian side came out in force. Rainbow belts, hats, earrings, ironic mullets. I went to gay bars with her a few times. Being around those fit, hunky, entirely sexually unavailable men was good practice for going out with Sean. And I got lots of compliments from drag queens on my makeup. I was kind to every girlfriend Agnes introduced me to, and obligingly scathing when they dumped her six months later. There was one, Claire, who broke her heart, I think. After they split up, Agnes updated her profile on Facebook to declare that she was interested in men and women. Started bringing back the occasional man. No need to wine and dine us this time. By that point, she'd stopped reading Cosmo. It turns out that Simon is amazing in bed. I'd forgotten what sex was like, living with Sean. They say knobs have two moods. Well, Sean's must have been permanently depressed. It's so nice to feel desired again, to not have to coerce a man into sex with the promise of going on a workers' rally. Simon came to the barbecue the day after the quiz and brought a six-pack of beer and a value pack of hamburgers. Sean's a vegetarian, so he and Agnes spent most of the afternoon tending over the corn and some limp courgettes. Simon and I stayed up into the night, smoking a spliff and trying to outdo each other's knowledge of indie music. I told him my mate's uncle wrote the bass line to come on Eileen. He said his dad's mate was an usher at the wedding of one of Suede. We slept together, of course. Agnes took a dim view. You're like a monkey swinging between branches, she said. You can't let go of one until you've got hold of another. I said she wouldn't understand since she'd become an asexual. She got angry then, said... Just because I'm asexual doesn't mean I don't feel things for people. For fuck's sake, Sophie. 
You've never had the first clue how much I've been feeling in all these years. And looked at me kind of... I don't know. For a second, I'll admit, I was worried in case she might... like me. The possibility had crossed my mind before, when she was helping me untangle my bikini in Marbella. Never said anything, though. She could see from my face that something was up. Told me not to flatter myself. Went back outside to sit with Sean. I went round to Simon's. I'm there a lot these days. Sean doesn't notice. He's at work a lot of the time. Hasn't mentioned anything. Me and Simon had our first argument the other day about the washing up. It had piled up to disgusting proportions, but each of us thought the other had caused the bulk of it. I'm not backing down. He says he's not either. It'll be interesting to see how this pans out. I'm going to end it with Sean tomorrow. Simon's asked me to go camping with him in the peaks. He's got some friends who are playing a festival. Thinks it'd be fun to go see them, take some drugs, get messy. I think about Sean, with his home gym equipment and his jock straps hanging off the door handles. I know what I have to do. He took it probably too well, when I think about it. I should have suspected something when he offered to drive me and Simon to the peaks. But then, he's always been a decent man, very mindful of others. It was Agnes who told me, as it goes, without meaning to. I'd broken the news to Sean not five minutes earlier. He looked to be in a bit of a state, even before I started. Said I'd caught him after one of his home gym sessions. He was asking about Simon's tent when I heard a faint but persistent noise coming from his room upstairs. Mr. Lover, Lover, mm. Apparently, it had been going on for a few months. They weren't sleeping with each other. Neither of them had the drive. They've only ever kissed, that's all. Never gone beyond that, or so they claim, and I've no reason to doubt them. She's asexual. He's genuinely interested in canal construction. But all the same. It's a lot of kisses. They've been not sleeping together behind my back for a while. Agnes says she'd hoped I'd understand and that she hoped it wouldn't be the end of such a long friendship. Well, the washing up got done in the end. Simon caved in. But only because I caved in last night. In bed. When I couldn't really be bothered. We're off to the peaks in the morning. Sean is moving out while we're gone. I've said he doesn't have to do that, but he thinks it's best. I mustn't forget the ground sheet. It can be cold in those hills. Swinging Between Branches was written by Katie Knight and performed by Pippa Caddick. It was directed by Tom Crowley and recorded by Andy Goddard at the Coach House Studio. The Katie Knight play brought up a really interesting perspective because, I mean, again, certainly from my experience, asexuality is something that is not talked treated, about enough. No, it's treated as invisible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sexuality or sex is such an assumption, like it's the basis of so many chats in the pub and so much, so many drinking games. And like, it's just a kind of given. Whereas I think while everything should be on the table, nothing should be a given. Um, so I thought this play was a really interesting way of dealing with that because obviously we don't get to hear from the perspective of the asexual character. We get to hear 
an exaggerated, but um, a voice that sort of represents the more mainstream view of it, which is sidelining, overlooking um, the asexual character's feelings and life choices and and sexuality. And sort of demeaning that choice and the demeaning that um, that self that an asexual person has for themselves. Yeah, exactly. It, it follows a theme, though. I think, um, like we said earlier, sex as an act does pop up in fiction so much that it should be that everything is is considered and talked about and there shouldn't be anything which is off limits and everything should be accepted and in this lovely dream world that you know everything is accepted and but so much isn't and stemming from that conversation about asexuality there's so many sections of society that aren't allowed to I feel like if they're portrayed in mainstream fiction, whether that's books or TV, they aren't portrayed often enough as characters who are allowed to feel their sexuality and be sexual characters. Back in episode one of our lovely, lovely podcast, the lovely, lovely Matilda Abini shared a a gorgeous, gorgeous play with us. And I remember us as producers reading that and loving it so much, but it's also just a perspective. You think disabled people's, um sexuality isn't highlighted enough it's not highlighted as a as a need of theirs and not enough attention is given to making sure that they get their basic human rights and sex as a basic human right and all of those types of um sort of knock-on effects of that but there's 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 tons of of sections of people who are never portrayed or are very very rarely portrayed as being allowed to be sexual I think that's absolutely true. And I think one of the jobs of storytelling in whatever form it is, is not only to describe experience and to make you go, oh yeah, God, yeah, that's exactly right. But to also challenge you and present another person's experience and for you to be like, what? Oh, really? And I think at its, maybe at its worst, maybe it's the fiction's fault, but maybe it's also us as readers' fault is when it makes you just go, ha, 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 that's stupid or that, mm. you know, ridicule it. Maybe it's because it's poorly produced, but also I think there is an element of our own expectations and prejudices coming in. But sometimes those moments where, like the Matilda Ravini play actually, where it just makes you go, oh God, I really, I hadn't had to consider that. And, it's and how just, awful is that? that we how awful is that? that? And it, but it also just, it, any moment in storytelling which gently and kindly is my favorite but reveals your ignorance and helps you fill in a gap um so that you can take it into the world is has got to be a good thing and when it comes to something like sex and sexuality where we're all navigating this world full of billions of people with all these very specific um wants and needs and desires anything that can help us approach all these people we're going to meet with more sensitivity and not be shocked when someone feels safe enough to reveal something has got to be a good thing. As internet access and social attitudes make sexual content more widely available and less easy to censor, the new generation of creatives approaching the topic are free to explore their own sexuality and discover those of others. The people we've heard from this month seem to be approaching this with a hugely admirable openness and sensitivity. Will this new, unflappable approach to sex lead to more enlightened attitudes about consent and tolerance? We can only hope, but it seems like a very strong start, at least. Thanks to everyone who tuned in this month. 
If you'd like more information on any of the features you've heard in this episode, you can find full episode notes on our website, storyetcetrapod.com. If you're enjoying Story Etc., the best thing you can do to help us out is to tell a friend, whether in person or online. You can find us at Story Etc. Pod on Twitter, so please do say hello. We love nice reviews too, so please do throw some stars our way on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or your podcast platform of choice. We're always looking for submissions too, so if you're a writer with a short play you'd like us to make, or an actor who'd like to perform in one, do email us at storyetcetrapod at gmail.com. We want to hear your stories too. That's all from us this month. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode, Fear. Story Etc. was produced and presented by Tom Crowley, Jenny Redmond and Eleanor Rushton. The supervising editor was Odin Ornhill marson who also composed the music. Our guests this month were Lindsay Dukes, Christian Graham and Pandora Blake. Special thanks to Andy Goddard at the Coach House Studio. Story Etc. is a production of Audio Scribble and Crowley & Co. Thanks for listening.